This is The Conversation and I'm Jonathan Larson with TYT Investigates. Immigration, the issue of immigration was probably the biggest single factor that brought Donald Trump into the White House. It remains an important issue today. We're not talking about it as much because Donald Trump is gone and we've got a pandemic going on and we've got an impeachment trial going on. But it still matters, there are still lives on the line and it's still gonna shape our politics for years to come. So today I wanted to speak with Ali Nurani, who is the president and CEO of the nonpartisan advocacy group, the National Immigration Forum, and also hosts his own podcast, the Only in America podcast. Ali, thanks for joining us tonight. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. So uh, we know that that President, I do want to get to um, you know the 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 big burning issue of uh, kids in cages, which riled up so much opposition to President Trump. Uh, during his administration, but I, I, I want to start with the executive order that we saw from President Biden that hit on on three distinct areas in terms of immigration policy. And I'm wondering if you can sort of walk us through those, how much each of those mean, and what what the impact is going forward as he implements those orders. Sure. Well, the first one of the one of the orders was really focused on asylum seekers at the border. Um, and what he did here is that he asked his administration to begin a process to look at the migrant protection protocols or remain in Mexico. In essence, the policy that was put in place after the child separation policy that forced migrant families to wait in Mexico while their cases were being heard. As part of that executive order, he also looked south to Central America and has begun a process to really restore dignity, uh, um, you know, lessen corruption, lessen impunity, uh, really strike, uh, attack the issues of violence in Central America. In essence, the root causes of migration. So the first order really kind of took a bounce of looking at the border, but looking at the root causes of migration, particularly from Central America. I want to, I want to second for a quick second on the issue of asylum. Uh, was it the previous case? And this is just my own ignorance here. Was it previously the case that if you showed up and you made a claim seeking asylum? That you got to come in and be here while that claim was pending. What? How was it? How was it handled prior to Trump? So prior to Trump, and according to law, what can what happens is that let's say I uh, live in Honduras, right, and my family was killed by a gang or a cartel, or I was persecuted in some way. I have the legal right to be able to come to the U.S. Uh, and to present myself to a Customs and Border Patrol officer and ask for asylum protection. I would then have to pass a credible credible fear interview. Typically, those credible if your interviews are conducted by asylum officers, not CBP agents, as they were done under the Trump administration. If I passed that credible fear interview, then my case would in essence move into the court system. I would then be allowed to enter the US and in essence wait. Under the Obama administration, there were efforts to detain families while their cases were being held or being processed. But that was, you know, sometimes they did it, sometimes they didn't. And oftentimes what would happen is that they would be held and they'd be released with an alternative to detention, like an ankle bracelet. All of those options are exponentially more humane than what the Trump administration moved forward with, obviously. And and so the 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 question now then is. Uh, of the kids who were separated from their families and were being held by the Trump administration in these conditions, which which range from deplorable to maybe possibly legal, um, what has the Biden administration done since January 20th to mitigate 
the con those conditions to to not just the the long term, unfortunately, long term efforts to reunite them with their families, but also just the day to day, the everyday conditions in which they're living. Some of these kids, some of these younger kids were were apparently experiencing states close to PTSD or or catatonia, just going into shock from the the way they were treated. What is the Biden administration doing? today right now to ensure that that changes, if not overnight, then two days from now. So what's happening now at the border is that you still have unaccompanied children presenting at the border asking for protection. What the Biden administration has done in the last couple of weeks is to stand up increased shelter space so that these children have a safe place to remain until a guardian or, or a foster home can be identified within the United States. They have, you know, in essence, kind of reopened some spaces that are much larger because of COVID-19. So they're doing everything that they can right now to put resources in place. The big challenge for the Biden administration is that this is a humanitarian crisis nested within a global pandemic, nested within, you know, just this the sheer destruction of the the previous policy by the Trump administration. So. They've got to do. They've got to work extra hard to move immigration judges to the border, asylum officers to the border, make sure that there's infrastructure. But then also that they are collaborating with community-based organizations, all the way from Brownsville to Tijuana, so that there's a there's a support network for children and families if once they're released. And so it sounds like I'm kind of extrapolating from what you said. It sounds like they're they're standing up. Uh, networks of advocates and other people, if not stakeholders, who maybe have been shut out of the, this process for the past four years. Is that is that relatively accurate? You're absolutely right, Jonathan. And and you know the Trump administration, oftentimes what they would do is say work with an organization in El Paso, like the Annunciation House, which is the largest shelter in El Paso. They would call up the Annunciation House right when they'd be dropping families off at the bus station in El Paso. What the Biden administration needs to do is set up relationships and communications much, much further, much earlier in that process, which is going to make it easier on the organizations, on the families, and really across the board. The other thing that to keep an eye on that we're particularly interested in is will the UNHCR and International Organization of Migration, That's UN on Human Rights, correct? Correct. Uh, UN uh, High Commission on Refugees. UN High right, Commission on Refugees. Me, right. Thank you. Thank you. They've been they've been deployed to Mexico's southern border to help. Uh, kind of manage the flow, but they've never been at Mexico's northern border, in essence, the US-Mexico border. So we think that deploying UNHCR to the US-Mexico border could also help the situation. And it's it sounds like you're saying the situation still needs help. So granted that we're not yet a month into the Biden administration, are you as an advocate for immigrants, are you uh, satisfied with the progress that's been made by the Biden administration, understanding that you want them to do more, do you think, yes, this is exactly, if not better where than where I hoped they would be by now? Well, I mean, none of the problems that the Trump administration left for the Biden folks were gonna be resolved in one day or one month. This is going sure. to be a four year effort to, re, to turn everything around. The reason why we are, we're confident that things are headed in the right direction is number one, they've got the right staff in place from Secretary Mayorkas, uh, all the way through DHS and even Health and Human Services, you had smart people doing good work. Um, they're thinking about what are the processes to reopen these uh, channels for asylum. If you go from zero to 60 overnight, it creates just a different kind of chaos. So to take a beat and really kind of think about, again, kind of the infrastructure and the processes that need to be in place, I think in the long term, 
is is really good for the safety of these families, but also the safety of the country. So I don't want to put you on the hot seat here, except for the fact that I totally want to put you on the hot seat here. And what I want to ask you is, there's there's this effort now, right? The Congress is is talking to inspectors general, and they're looking at the conduct, the behind the scenes policy conduct of everyone from Jeff Sessions on down in the creation of these policies that led to the separation of families. Do you think people should go to jail for what the Trump administration did and how they did it behind the scenes and why? I mean, some of the, the uh, inspector general reports out of the Department of Justice of what you know Rod Rosenstein had done, did and what Sessions did are just, I, I mean, I. I don't even have the adjectives for a family friendly show to, to give you a sense of how I feel about them, right? Yeah. Um, but what's important here is that the Department of Justice digs deep into who did what, were they acting under legal authority? And if there's a criminal case to be pursued, they should pursue it. But just as importantly, the Biden administration needs to make sure that there are the safeguards in place from a policy perspective so that we as the United States never, ever, ever again see the separation of families as a legitimate policy choice. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by the fact that immigration was such a driving force, as I mentioned earlier, such a driving force behind galvanizing support for Trump, right? It sort of, it sort of detonated, demolished the old uneasy coalition within the Republican Party, where there were business interests that were happy to have a flow of, of legal, uh, uh, you know, documented workers coming in, as well as undocumented workers who they could exploit. And and uh, we only have a couple minutes, but I'm I'm curious whether you think that what's happened to that coalition, that that business seg- sector of the of the the pro-immigration business sector of the Republican Party, and if. So I think that the Biden folks have an incredible opportunity in the next four years. It's not just about explaining these changes in immigration policy to the progressive or the liberal activist base. There are a massive number of suburban voters, particularly women voters who used to see themselves as Republican, who were turned off in 2018 by child separation and turned off in 2020 by the ongoing Trump administration's immigration policies. That slice of the American public is looking for a different way to go on immigration. And that therein lies the opportunity for President Biden and his team. And real quickly, do you think that Biden, do you see signs that Biden, the Biden administration is doing what it needs to, to prevent exploitation of undocumented workers by businesses in America, right? It's very easy to crack yeah. down on the workers. Do you see that that business enforcement being put in place as well? That's a great question. I think that having hopefully, you know, Marty Walsh, the mayor of Boston, and as a secretary of labor, I worked with him when he was in Massachusetts and he was a state rep. He gets these issues. I think he is the perfect secretary of labor to be really holding unscrupulous employers accountable for the way they're treating undocumented immigrant workers, immigrant workers, as well as native born workers. Well, we're gonna we're gonna have to keep an eye on this. That's that's the job of being good citizens, regardless of who's in office. So we'll we'll be keeping an eye on this and hopefully talking to you again. Ali Nurani, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you so much. Back in 1881, a 42-year-old Brazilian fisherman kicked off and led a strike 
against transportation of slaves from slave ships to the shore. What happened next was over the next three years, the movement against slavery, the abolition movement in Brazil grew and grew. And it worked and it ended. And for more than 100 years afterwards, the, the grave site of this national hero, this abolitionist national hero was lost. A Florida, a University of Florida grad student set out to find this lost tomb. And uh, I wanna share that journey with you because it's an amazing story. And the story of slavery and abolition in Brazil is a really, I think, important one just from what I've learned about it. So I wanna bring in Licinio Miranda, University of Florida doctoral student. Thanks Thank so you much. very much. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So the, uh, the, the fisherman, I have that right, right? Was Francisco Jose Donacimento. Perfect, and perfect. Your Portuguese <laughs> is perfect. <laughs> I get that a lot, I get that a lot. <laughs> and, and from my understanding is that although his trade was as a fisherman, the, one of the things the fisherman did to make money as well was, was move uh, cargo or slaves in, in this case, back and forth from, from seagoing vessels to the shore. Is that roughly right? Perfect. You know, actually, back then in Brazil, since the ports were in terrible condition, so you would have usually port workers who are also fishermen, you know, who work part time at the docks. And they would be hard to, to carry, as you mentioned, you know, to carry cargo. And that would be you know, merchandise, goods in, in general, you know, and also slaves as well. Perfect. And, and you are studying, if I have this correct, you are studying the, the, uh, the abolitionist movement in Brazil back in, I guess, the the uh, the 19th century, right? The late 19th century. Yes, I'm doing research on that. I think it's a very important topic. You know, it is just as important uh, in Brazil as it is in the United States. I think it's not only important, but it's actually a very contemporary uh, uh, topic, very important to this very day. So tell us a little bit about Francisco, because I know how the story ends, but I'm curious why it is you got so fixated on finding him and what happened when you decided to set out on that on that search. You you just you gave her a great context already, but I can add a few more things, you know. So what happened was that Francisco de Nascimento, he was a poor man and he was a man of color. So, I mean, you, you have this person of color who came from an impoverished background. He was the legitimate child, so he didn't know his father. And somehow he was able, by leading a bunch of people just like him, some of whom were former slaves, other was, or actually slaves themselves, you know, and they joined forces for a greater cause. So this is a man who, I mean, in theory, he, could, he should not have had any kind of impact in Brazilian history. And somehow he was able to rise to the occasion, you know, and take uh, the leadership, you know, of a movement such as the abolitionist movement. And so you decided you were going to find him. <laughs> yes, I was, I was upset that although he's regarded as a national hero in Brazil, no one knew where he had been buried, no one. So I found odd that a man of his importance uh, to our history had been just forgotten like that. So I started doing research, trying to understand more, not about where, not only about where he was buried, but where more about him as well, you know, about his participation in the, in the anti-slavery movement. Right, right. So you went 
You went, you're from Brazil originally, do I have that right? Yes, I am, I'm Brazilian, and yes. You went, you went back home and you you went searching in, in old, really old graveyards essentially, right? Yeah, so what happened was that I started doing research, you know, locating documents, trying to to read, you know, old newspapers, trying to understand what happened in his last days. So I was able to track down the exact location of the cemetery in which he was buried, which is the St. John the Baptist Cemetery in Fortaleza, which is in the northeast of Brazil. Fortaleza means fortress in English. So it's one of the largest cities in Brazil. It's a beautiful place, you know, has wonderful beaches. So if you can travel there, you'll love it. But uh, so he, I knew the, the city, I knew the cemetery, you know, I was able to locate. So I had to find his grave. So what happened was that I went there, you know, for over three years, I would I would travel during summer, you know, I would go there and I would try to locate among 15,000 tombs in that cemetery, which is huge. I'm not talking just, you know, some, uh, some, some gravestones. I'm talking about the kind of ne- necropolis you know, a place, you know, huge with those monuments, with statues. So it took a while Going until I was finally able. I'm sorry. Going back to the 1800s, not just a big one, but <laughs> very, old, yes, perfect. You know, I mean, very old. Uh, I mean, very old. The the ground was very une- was uneven. You know, it was hot because Brazil. So it took some time, and I, I mean, it happened. When you say it happened, you mean you found it. <laughs> Yes, I did. So eventually one day, you know, in late uh, July of last year, I was walking around as usual, looking one for one by one, you know, uh, of the tombs until I saw it. You know, I saw this very old uh, tomb in ruins, you know, but I it, the plague with his name, with his birth date and, and, and death date were still there. And so I just I, knew it. I had found yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, it, it's sort of obvious, I think, on the face of it, why this would be important to Brazil today. But I was, I was really glad to hear you say earlier that you think it, it matters now, because in reading up on on his story a little bit, I was also fascinated by the idea that that a man of color who was in in you know worked in a, a poor man's trade. Um, and was 42 years old. This wasn't even some young firebrand. Uh, how is it? Why, why does his story and what he achieved in Brazil then? Why does that resonate with you today? And why does that feel like something that you think we should consider important? Uh, because, as you mentioned, he's a man of color from poor background who was fighting for a great cause. You know, he was fighting not only. This is important to mention. Not only against slavery. Not only for freedom, okay, of his fellow Brazilians, you know, back home, but he was also fighting for equality, for racial equality. He was he was fighting for tolerance for for uh, uh, for for people to be able, you know, to be treated as in seen as equals. And so this, those are the kind of values that you can say that are universal. You know, it's not, they're not just important for Brazilians. They were not just important for Brazilians back then. They're important for Brazilians now, and they're important just as much for Americans. So I believe that Americans, you know, can, they, they can learn much from Brazil, just as Brazil can learn much about United States history, you know, because you can, under, you can go back, take a look beyond the, the, the broader borders, you know, and see those men and women who did so much, even though they had, they did, they had so little themselves. 
So how uh, I was not familiar with with the history here, but based on what I've read, uh, the abolitionist movement, in very clear contrast, right to the United States, succeeded peacefully. There was no civil war over the issue of of slavery, and I, I'm I'm curious if you can sort of give us a quick idea of what what were the political dynamics that Brazil was able to dismantle this, I forget the, there's a cliche about it, the, the strange institution, what is it they, they used to call it? There's, I would just say cruel institution is more than enough. Yes, <laughs> absolutely, of course, yeah. How was it that, that this entire country was able to dismantle this piece of its economy? It's, you know, the, the, this piece of how it worked peacefully, because we still haven't figured it out. Yes, yeah, so what happened was that unlike the US, this is the very reason to why Brazil took so long you know, to end slavery. What happened was that activists throughout the country, okay, uh, they were able to join forces, not only with, with middle class, upper class, but I'm talking about the common people, people of color, former slaves, slaves themselves, you know, whom they helped escape from plantations, whom they helped you know, hide from their slave owners. And so by doing that, by, by being active, not in towns, in, in the countryside, you know, uh, doing protesting, you know, calling against slavery in, 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 in newspapers, you know, they were able to accomplish much, as you mentioned, without the need for a civil war. Man, it's, it's just such a fantastic story. And I love the fact that your story shines a light on on that that bigger broader story that still has uh, so much resonance today for yeah. us a, a continent away. So Lucinio Miranda, thanks so much for joining us here on the conversation. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Thank you very much.